Greetings and welcome to the Heart Hall Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Cordova. The Heart Hall Podcast is a show dedicated to highlighting the faculty, staff, and guests of the University of California Davis's Ethnic and Gender Sexuality Studies departments housed in Heart Hall and under the Heart Interdisciplinary Programs umbrella. In this episode, I welcome Maceo Montoya onto the show. Maceo is an associate professor in the UC Davis Chicano Chicana Chicanx Studies Department. He has an MFA in Visual Arts from Columbia and a BA in History and Ethnicity, Race, and Migration from Yale. He is also an author, having written four fiction books, two nonfiction books, and worked on four collaborative books. Much of our conversation is about his artwork and writing, which includes his latest novel, Preparatory Notes for Future Masterpieces, which he wrote and illustrated. This book tells the tale of a Chicano force gump of sorts who encounters many prominent figures in the Chicano movement. We discuss this book as well as his childhood in Elmira, California, growing up in an artistic and educational family, inspiration, becoming a magazine editor, and more. For all his books and to see some of his artwork, you can head to MaceoMontoya.com. Now here's my conversation with Maceo Montoya. I want to get started by talking just kind of about uh, stuff in your life in general. Um, I read that you, on your website, that you grew up in a town called Elmira outside of Vacaville. Uh, what was growing up there like for you? And uh, did you go to school in Vacaville? Yeah, so growing up in Elmira, um, I mean, I, I sometimes look at that as, you know, kind of one of the really like important uh, kind of decisions I didn't make, right? My parents moved there. Um, but I, I feel like I trace so much of who I am to growing up in this small town of 300 people. I was born in Oakland, in East Oakland, um, off of Fruitvale. Um, my dad had a lot of different um, like uh, print talleres in East Oakland, um, but they wanted to raise to raise to raise us, um, you know, kind of outside of of the city. And they kind of saw their kids as like their their project, and uh, felt that they could have a little bit more con- control um, if 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 we were in a small town, and um, they had a little bit more, um, you know, just like supervision. And uh, yeah, so they chose they found Elmira kind of randomly. They were they take like day trips um, from the from the Bay Area. And they found Dixon, and uh, which isn't too far from Davis. And uh, then they went back a couple of weeks later and happened upon Elmira, um, which uh, is definitely not Dixon. Smaller town, uh, just uh, like kind of dwarfed by um, uh, the Vacaville sewer plant. Um, there ended up being like a, some sort of like asbestos spill that impacted the whole town. And, but my parents were just so excited about this little town, this house that they came across and, uh, they put a bid on it. And a couple of weeks later, they found out that the bid had been accepted. And, and, uh, yeah. So, um, I always like look at Elmira as like this shitty little town that, um, just is, was kind of everything to me. And uh, very few friends because there were so few kids around, but those friends are the ones that I still kind of look to as, you know, kind of my, you know, extended, extended brothers. I already have um, three of them, but uh, just this closeness that developed because there was so little else going on. Um, The way that I received stories, so much of that kind of just as a small town life. Now, is this an appreciation you grew to have? uh when you were older or did you realize it when you were growing up that it was a special place because you definitely sound like you have an affinity for it now but i can't tell if it's hindsight oh that's a great question and yeah no i think for most of my life uh, like when i was young i I treasured it i knew that it was special but i also wanted to escape it and I, i never felt like i was trapped by it um you know my dad taught at the university um we we still had plenty of friends in the bay area um my extended family right being very important or part of the chicano movement so there was this kind of awareness of of uh um the rest of the world beyond the confines of elmira and yeah i definitely i wanted to escape felt felt like i was like a little embarrassed that i was from um this kind of small nothing town and when i went out to school on the east coast um i would tell people i was oh i'm from near san francisco or i'm from near sacramento um, and I wouldn't say I was, you know, from Elmira. Um, and it, it, you know, it wasn't until like I actually graduated. So four years throughout my Yale experience. And I was like, you know, the procession, like walking through the graduation ceremony and my dad cried out Elmira. <laughs> and, you know, it just kind of hit me at that moment that, uh, how like 
how rare it was for someone from Elmira to be graduating from Yale University. And, and I could claim that. And um, I just kind of felt this welling of pride. And, and I also, I knew I wanted to go home and, and I wanted to be near my family. And so I started to kind of piece all these pieces, the, all these different elements together of how fundamental it was to, to, um, to who I am. And then eventually what kind of artist, um, you know, I became still my work is dominated by the agricultural landscape that surrounds Elmira. Um, I think the way, again, I said the importance of storytelling, the way I tell stories is informed by this kind of small time dynamic where you're running into the same people every single day. You're hearing the same stories. You're, um, you know, even still I go back and I visit my parents and I just, I pass my elementary school, I pass the post office, I pass neighbors' homes. Um, and it seems like it's just kind of deteriorating the town itself. It's always been deteriorating, um, you know, probably for the last hundred years. But at the same time, um, I know all the stories and I've seen so much of its history um, that uh, it just, yeah, it, it impacts, um, you know, so much of who I am and my approach to my work. And all of that, I think I had to learn and, and appreciate over time. So growing up with your, your family being in a university themselves, was there a culture shock sh still when you went to the East Coast to go to Yale? Or since, you know, you knew the university system, was there was it kind of normal? No, absolutely. There was culture shock. Um, and, you know, that's the interesting thing is like, yes, I would go you know, to campus with my dad. And so, I you know, to UC Davis's campus and, you know, felt comfortable there to a degree, but, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know what it was about Elmira that I just always felt like I was just, I was a kid from this small town. And so even when I like went to high school in Vacaville, which is, you know, just like a mid-sized city around the time it had like 80, 90,000 people. Um, I didn't feel like I fit there. And then, so to go to the East coast and to go to this very prestigious school and like the campus with it's like, you know, um, stone buildings and these beautiful quads and, and, um, you know, to be kind of mixing with kids who had gone to boarding schools and private schools. And, and yeah, it, it was, it was, I, I felt very isolated and felt that um, this was all new to me, something that I was felt very fortunate to experience. And, but I never quite got, got over that. Like, I think that, you know, some of my friends at school would be very, you know, blase about their, you know, presence there. Um, and I, I, I never felt like that. I always felt like this was something that was so different from, you know, anything I had experienced before. And it was all the more reason why I wanted to come home after I graduated and to kind of connect again to this region and connect with my family. And, and, um, you know, I, 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 yeah, I needed that. I needed, you know, the kind of, to kind of process, um, the, the last couple of years that intense experience and part of being able to process it was to return to the place that, that I felt had formed me. And you mentioned a lot of your art was influenced by where you grew up. And I, I looked into some of your father's work as well as your own. And I see some similarities from my untrained eye with your drawings, but your paintings feel very different from your dad's. Uh, was this a deliberate choice of yours um, to like set yourself apart? Yeah. So I, you know, I think it's kind of like the similarities in the way that we laugh or the gestures with our arms or, you know, the way we walk, like there's these things that you inherit um, that, you know, you can't change uh, no matter how much you try. And, and I feel like, you know, my hand on the page, right. However, a drawing emerges, like, how do I, you know, distinguish or separate that from my father? One, he was my first instructor. He would give me drawing lessons. Um, and then two, just how much of it is just like, I stared at his drawings, you know, from very earliest age, his artwork in, in our house, in my bedroom, uh, seeing him at work. Uh, and then also what's something that's just like in the genes. Um, but as far as, um, you know, it's kind of intent intentionality behind you know my style and wanting to make it different I think that actually emerged out of our different subjects and there's definitely early work where I tried to make kind of political posters and uh, um, you know would pick some theme from you know my, my dad never felt like his work needed to be limited to protesting you know 
what was happening in Latino or Chicano neighborhoods, right? A lot of his work did, but, um, you know, you have posters about Vietnam, posters about South Africa, posters about Latin America, Central America. And I, I definitely have early work that kind of imitated that, that kind of desire to speak to the injustices that were happening around the world. And, but it, it, it really wasn't until I graduated from college and I moved to Knight's Landing. Um, and I, I had this desire that I wanted to teach myself how to paint. And that the only way to do that was to find some small town in the middle of nowhere, not my own small town, not Elmira, because that would have been too close to my parents. And <laughs> I wanted to find another small town. And so I happened upon Knight's Landing. Um, my dad's class had painted a mural there uh, a year or two before. And I liked the town and thought it would be a good place to like find an apartment or find a room. And that's what ended up happening. And I had some money saved from a mural commission and I just, yeah, that's, that's all I did. I just painted. Um, it's when I first started writing stories. And I think that again, this like the way that a small town kind of taught me to absorb stories. Like I was able to kind of, to like more fully understand that in Knight's Landing where I would walk around town and maybe I'd have one conversation a day or the lady that I rented the room from, she would like fill me in on all the stories of like the gossip of, you know, what was happening in the neighborhood or the people that she knew. And um, I would see a face in the store and I would try and memorize it. Or I started playing soccer and the guys on the team, you know, would share their stories of coming to the U S you know, undocumented and their work in the fields and the conversations that we had. And I, and I realized like, this very slow way of just kind of like gathering information or gathering details that would then inform or inspire a story that I needed that in order to be able to like, okay, now I'm going to make this painting or now I'm going to write this story. And so it became about that, those particular specific details rather than feeling you know, rage at some injustice that I had read about, or that, you know, in the case of my father, that, you know, the racism that he experienced, the, um, the economic hardship that he experienced growing up, he could tap into those feelings very easily. But a lot of it was like an, a response to um, injustices that he saw. Whereas for me, I felt like I needed to have these very slow, deliberate, um, conversations that went in whatever direction that they ended up going in, but that some detail I would seize upon and that would, you know, turn into a painting or it would turn into a short story. And so I think that, you know, if I were to draw a distinction between my dad, my, my dad's work and my own, it's like the intimacy of, of the detail. And so much of that, I think, came from, you know, his life experiences versus, versus my own, uh, which, you know, a lot of it was, you know, I'm not telling my own stories. I'm, I'm kind of reaching in and, and, and are, you know, kind of aware of the community around me and the stories that I feel comfortable telling by the interactions that I have with them, which include, you know, conversations with neighbors or are simply just walking the same streets and, and nodding hello. When you were kind of forming your own artistic style early on, being entrenched in art so much growing up, was there ever like a rebellion you had to just like, I'm not going to draw. That's their thing. That's it's my dad's thing. I'm going to I'm going to play sports. I'm going to play guitar like no, this like art seems like it would be the rebellion. But when rebellion is already kind of the norm, did you try and do something else or is it just like, OK, cool. I am also an artist. Yeah. Absolutely. I, for years, I mean, all the way through undergrad, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. Um, I think I wanted to be some sort of like, you know, civil rights lawyer or work with immigrants or, um, yeah, I, I wanted, I, you know, I, I, I mentioned kind of like feeling that rage against the injustices I saw, you know, all around me. And oftentimes, like I felt that artwork was like, it wasn't tangible enough what it was able to achieve. And even though I had stories from my dad's own experience, uh, I could point to, right, the importance of the arts. I still, I think I, I wanted to do something different. And I also wanted to have it be something more tangible, right? Like there, there's this issue and you're able to kind of apply whatever skills that you have um, to addressing, addressing that issue. And, you know, I think that I don't know why I gravitated towards the law. I mean, I think that could have been just as a kid, I was always arguing with people and my parents would say, or family members would say like, you know, you'd make a good lawyer. <laughs> um, 
And yeah, so you absorb that and then that becomes like, uh, uh, all right, I'm, I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to be a lawyer. And that's the way that I'm going to, um, you know, kind of make the change or, or that, that I want to see in the, in the world. But I didn't really have any particular love for the law. Um, and I think I would have eventually have, have become disillusioned with it. Um, but you know, what, what happened is, uh, my senior year of college, um, I painted a mural with a friend, Francisco Delgado, and I was always like doing artwork to go like get fellowships or like over the summer I would travel and I would like use my art to kind of apply for monies for that. Or I would do graphics for online magazines, but I was pretty certain that I was like, I don't want to be an artist. And so I think when you mentioned this idea of like a rebellion, I think it was like wanting to do, wanting to do something different from what my family did or what my family was, was known for. Um, absolutely. But um, it wasn't until I painted this mural my senior year and I, you know, I, couldn't wait to get out there to work on the wall. I love putting up the scaffolding and climbing it. I love kind of interacting with people as they pass by and talking about the artwork, talking about the process. Um, I didn't want to leave at the end of the day. I like couldn't sleep because I was so excited to like get out there and work on the mural again. And, and so I, I, I knew enough, right? Like I didn't give up completely on my dreams of becoming a lawyer, but like I knew enough that that the feeling that I had was something special and that I had to, that I had to follow it. Um, and it wasn't again until I went to Knight's Landing and I started writing along with painting that I thought like, okay, well maybe, maybe just painting wouldn't be enough. I also need to add this other element of writing and then the two of them, but it was definitely like the telling stories, narrative, um, this kind of like, um, using, uh, uh, these different, these different mediums to, to tell these stories that were important to me that, uh, that, that, yeah, that I, you know, definitely kind of let go any notions of, of doing anything else. And, and I really haven't looked back since. What's interesting though, is like, I, I absolutely knew that I did not want to become a professor. <laughs> uh, and I think there was also a resistance there um, as much as I admired my dad's work uh, and saw the impact that he could have in the classroom. I think that as a young person, I was very, I was too impatient. And the idea that my dad like was raising consciousness, like I wanted more than that. Like I wanted more than just raising consciousness. Um, and I don't know when I kind of settled into, I mean, I obviously I recognize the value of that. Right. But, um, you know, I think at some point, maybe when I started teaching, um, and could see what could happen in the classroom and just how important that, that raising of consciousness isn't just, you know, it, you know, it can, you know, transforms lives and, and, you know, these kinds of exchanges that you can have that, um, that are, that are really, that are really inspiring. And, and again, there's like this kind of, this, it's, it, it's not as tangible say, Right. As, as um, well, I don't know exactly what, what is tangible when I mention that. Right. Like I, I think that um, there's these like residual effects of what can happen in the classroom. And I know that from my own experience, like conversations that I think about years later and kind of understand the impact that it had. And um, so, yeah, it's not always this kind of one-to-one that, uh, you know, you share some sort of information or fact and eyes open, right? It's, uh, I mean, that can happen, but it's really, it's really this hope that whatever is happening there in the classroom will reverberate, even if it's years later. Uh, I want to shift folks a little bit to your books as well as your artwork, because at my desks uh, on campus, I've had a couple of your books sitting there for a while which inspired me to reach out to you and talk to you because i they're sitting on the desk and i decided to thumb through them and check them out so in front of me i have the chicano movement for beginners and preparatory notes for future masterpieces um for chicano movement for beginners i noticed that you know all the artwork is done by you of course it's written and illustrated by you is was this a choice or did you run into um like a discovery that image rights are a whole thing because like my my expert, expertise is a very strong word, but my interest generally is in music, and I find that when somebody is going to do a cover of a song, there's a lot of pressure to get it right. When you are drawing important figures in the Chicano movement, it, do you have self-pressure to like 
get them to look exactly right or in a certain style or something like that over, you know, including a photo. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the Chicano movement for beginners, it's part of a, it's a series where they'll pair, um, you know, an expert in the field with an illustrator. And I think they were interested in me because I could do both. Um, and that's actually what attracted me to the project was, um, you know, I think there's probably, you know, there's better historians or there's people who are have, have better you know, expertise in the Chicano movement than I do. Um, but I was like, well, I, I could tell that history. But then I was I was really excited about the play between the text and the image. And I feel like from that first project, the first novel that I wrote in Night's Landing, where I was making this series of paintings and then writing stories that emerged from that, that that's been like the central, my central project is the way that image and word can, um, can tell different sides of a story that it's not, it's not just merely an illustration of, right? Like, I think that we kind of get used to that with like children's literature, you read something, um, and you expect on the facing page for there to be an illustration of it, a, a representation of what you were reading, as opposed to the two, understanding the two is telling different parts of the story. Um, and so whether I'm doing a collaboration with a poet, um, which I've done a number of times, or within my own work where I'm taking a painting and then, you know, separate essays or prose poems that I've written and, and, and combining the two, um, or in the case for Chicano movement for beginners, um, I was very much drawn to the different sides of the story that I could that I could um, express. The text was pretty straightforward. I mean, I definitely had fun with it. And there's chapters in there where um, I feel like I take a very personal lens as like the child of, of these Chicano movement figures, right? Having grown up in the movement, as opposed to kind of learning about it in college. Like I knew about Chicano history from, you know, some of my earliest memories, right? I'm brought to these cultural festivals and rallies and, you know, everyone is talking about the Chicano movement uh, in the 1980s as if it was still, you know, 1968 or 1971. Um, so that was a unique kind of vantage point that I had when it came to the text, but it was really the illustrations that I saw that I could get really creative. And yes, you're, as you mentioned, right? Like you have to kind of make it look like Cesar Chavez, or you have to make the illustration look like uh, Jorge Gonzalez or Reyes Lopez Tijerina or Dolores Huerta. And, and so that, that puts, that puts a certain pressure, but I also know that, that, you know, I could have a lot of fun with it and um, you know, uh, like how amazing to kind of imagine well, one of the illustrations I have Oscar Zeta Costa, who is kind of viewed as, you know, this kind of, very, you know, sometimes sexist, misogynistic, like his writing is very much in your face and talks, you know, in this derogatory way about women and can be very controversial. At the same time, you know, he's a very important literary figure as well as a political figure. And he's in the same frame as Gloria Anzaldúa, who is like one of the, um, you know, the philosophers, uh, most important philosophers, scholars, poets, uh, you know, academics, of um, the the you know Chicanx studies um, to this day, and I don't know if they would ever have been in the same room or what they would have been like. But as a as an illustrator, I can say I could put them on the same page because they were part of the same the same movement. And does it look exactly like Oscar Zaragoza? Does it look exactly like Gloria Anzaldúa? That 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 to me is less important than the fact that um, you know I can imagine them onto the page together. And that's, you know, that's what's really kind of, uh, you know, unique about about the medium is that is, is the possibilities that it provides. Uh, in that book, I'm sure in doing research for it, you encountered a ton of history books that had their own versions of these stories. And uh, growing up, you know, I grew up in a military family. I lived in Texas. I lived in Missouri. I lived in California. And one of the stories or not stories, one of the sections in your book that really stood out to me because of my upbringing was uh, the 500 years of conquest and colonialization section in which you state that President Polk sent troops into air quotes, protect Texas from the attack, but then set out to take the West, which when I was in fourth grade history in Texas in the 90s, we were provided a much more American savior angle to this, despite the fact that Texas, even living in Texas at that time was still like, hoorah, Texas, we don't need the United States either. Mm -hmm. So like, were there any stories that you told in that that you felt were very important to like dial down the whitewash or get 
specifically correct that you've heard just were incorrectly reported throughout various textbooks and stuff? You know, that's a good question. And I mean, I feel like I, it, it wasn't so much like kind of writing a corrective because, you know, th this, and this is the way that the Chicano movement for beginners is it's like, you're, you're kind of like regurgitating accepted history or histories. Right. And so um, even in something that, the, you know, that there's, you know, different sides or it's like, I'm, 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 I'm simply kind of stating what the different sides or the different perspectives. And so I don't remember exactly, you know, how I talked about that section, but it was like, you know, there's often one, this, this one way of looking at the history or that the way the history is often told. Um, but, you know, the Chicano movement pushed back and we're the first to kind of like talk about, um, uh, you know, not westward expansion as, you know, this wonderful manifest destiny, but actually to point out how land was taken and how people were disenfranchised and um, that uh, that is very much informs the history of Mexican-Americans in the United States and, you know, alters like their understanding of themselves as as Americans. Right. So I think often I would I would. Um, you know, talk about the way in which some some history or history had been had been presented, and then the way that the Chicano movement pushed back pushed back on it, um, for for sure. I you know i I wanted it I wanted it to be this kind of nuanced kind of conversation about the Chicano movement, and oftentimes it was hard, right? Because I you know I definitely had have my own opinion on, on some of these, uh, you know, moments in history or these certain figures. Um, and in a way, this wasn't the place to kind of have that, that debate or have that, it was more like here, here, here is the history as we understand it. But then that's why the illustrations, um, you know, kind of came into play. And I felt like I was able to, to poke fun or to, uh, you know, Reyes Lopez Tijerina, who is the, you know, the leader of the land grant movement in New Mexico, um, kind of showing just like his fanatical side or um, some of the outrageousness of, of some of his actions, which are almost like performative, except that, uh, you know, they were driven by, you know, his kind of crazy ego. So I was able to kind of do that in the illustrations, again, telling a different part of the story in a way that I may have been like limited with the text itself, just because of, you know, it being, uh, you know, a, a, a text geared towards um, people coming to to the Chicano movement for the first time. Uh, you are my second guest that has a connection to the city of Woodland. Um, on your website, you have a gallery called Woodland Scenes, and there are many images that I have seen growing up there because I grew up in Woodland between about 10 and 25. Oh, and, wow. and then uh, Michael Singh, who was a previous guest, he and I actually went to high school with, together. And we didn't know it at the time. Uh, <laughs> so what about woodland inspires you because uh your novella you must fight them is set in woodland as well yeah so you know i i didn't grow up in woodland um elmira you know much smaller town uh, about you know 30 minutes away and um it, you know but i i see it all kind of all these towns you know with, almost with the exception of davis like having a very similar feel right um and so when I moved to Knight's Landing, like I, I experienced that as well. And then I kind of got a glimpse of what Woodland would be like. And, you know, I, my dad and my colleague, Carlos Jackson, they were getting the Taller Tana, um, um, the community arts workshop, silkscreen print studio that's here in Woodland. They were getting that off the ground. And, and that was kind of it. That was the reason why I was like, well, let me see what Woodland is going to be like. And I, I ended up renting like an in-law house behind Artemio Pimentel. Uh, uh, he, he was then a council member, very young council member, and he would eventually be elected mayor. And so getting to know him and he introduced me to all of his friends and they all grew up in Woodland and the children of, of immigrants, most of their parents from not just from La Piedad, but from this the same rancho on the outskirts of La Piedad and kind of the community that they formed around them and their love of woodland, right? Their appreciation of this place that 
they left for college, but they wanted to come back and contribute. They wanted to raise their families here. And I saw that as very exciting that, you know, here, this is like this small town, small city that people want to return to, to, you know, to like, um, to contribute back to the place that they felt had given them so much. At the same time, I, I felt like, you know, there was two communities, there was a white community and there was a Mexican community. I felt like for several years, like I didn't really have that many even interactions with uh, the white side of Woodland because I was so immersed in this, in this, in the Mexican side. Um, I played on a softball team and a soccer team and they were all Mexicanos or Mexican Americans. And we would play teams that were like completely white. And I would paint murals in town with, uh, with young people. And most of them were or, you know, Mexican or Mexican American, Chicano. Um, and we'd be working on the wall and, you know, people would yell out, you know, take this back to Mexico. And, and uh, so I felt very uncomfortable with that dynamic too, you know, feeling like there was these, this huge divide between the, the, the communities. And yet I saw all of that as like fascinating to me as an outsider, right. Um, that here, this kind of growing, uh, economic and political class of, you know, young Mexican Americans that wanted to, you know, this was their home. They felt a strong connection to Mexico. They frequently went back to Mexico. Um, but Woodland was where they wanted to, you know, where they saw their future. That to me was fascinating. The larger immigrant community that was here kind of recreating, uh, you, you go to La Piedad, um, you know, city in, in Michoacan, and they talk about Woodland as if it's this great metropolis, you know, like everyone they know is in Woodland, right? Um, and, and then you see, right, the kind of recreation of a place like La Piedad or these ranchos, like you see the recreation of it here in Woodland. So you could be, you know, go to El Torito supermarket or meat market and then go over to the panaderia and then there's people outside like selling stuff and, and you can almost feel like, God, man, this could be Mexico, right? Um, and it's not until you actually go to Mexico and you see like, no, 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 it's, it's just the semblance of it, right? They're taking these different, the, the sights and smells and the sounds and just some of these elements and they're putting them together in this attempt to recreate their home. Um, but in fact, Woodland looks very different from, from La Piedad. All of that was, was fascinating to me. Um, and, and so was the divide between, you know, the white side and the brown side of, of, of the city. And even though it troubled me, I also understood it as, as kind of a microcosm or representative of, of what we would find out later, right? Um, the election of Trump, it may have surprised me, but it, not, not entirely, right? Because that, the, that dynamic of, of um, you know, one side kind of seeing another side as a complete other, um, that already existed, you know, here in, in, in Woodland and other places like Woodland. Um, so I, 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 you know, immediately I saw it for its possibilities when it came to my artwork, but then also the stories that I wanted to tell in my, in my novels. And so two of my novels, uh, You Must Fight Them, as you mentioned, the novella, and then the deportation of Walker Barasa are set, are set in Woodland. Um, and, uh, and then also, you know, subsequent novels that I've written, but haven't published yet, um, are, are also set here. Um, and I, and I think it's important that stories about places like Woodland are, are told, uh, not just about, you know, kind of the natural, the centers of, uh, of you know, LA or the Bay area or New York. Um, uh, to me, I've always been fascinated about places, uh, and on the outskirts. The divide is something I remember very well from growing up in Woodland. Um, in high school, we would have rallies, which should be inconsequential wastes of time. When you just go there, the cheerleaders do a dance, they introduce the football players, and then you go leave for the day early. But they always play the national anthem at them. And when they did, all the Mexican students would start chanting Mexico, which then all the mm -hmm. white students would start chanting USA. And then the every assembly just dissolved into screaming at each other yeah and my dumb group of friends and i would just start screaming canada because <laughs> I, we didn't want to be in the assembly anyway yeah. and it just seemed like it was doing this every time so we just had to take the piss out of it yeah and yeah. i've never heard like this is a it feels like a phenomenon that only i knew of but now hearing you say it kind of like almost cements a memory that i'm like did that really happen oh it absolutely happened great good yeah well not good yeah. but I'm not crazy. 
Yeah, no, definitely not crazy. And, you know, I, I, I grew up with that as well in Vacaville, but Vacaville, um, you know, when I went to high school, there was, you know, more diverse, there was, um, maybe there was like more divides, right. But you almost could, could, you know, kind of, you couldn't look past it. I remember it, you know, that feeling there distinctly, but it, it, there was just something else about, um, about Woodland. And, you know, I mentioned that story of when I was working on the mural with like the group of kids and when that car drove by and said, you know, this is America and said, you know, something else. And, you know, I, I was, I was left shaken, but my students were completely unfazed by it. Right. Because they were so used to it. And, and to me, again, that, 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 I guess that's what felt like the real, that was what was really unhealthy. Right. The real danger of, of, of such a divided place is that when incidents like that are just, they're so common that you don't even bat an eye. Um, whereas for me, you know, to be yelled at just, you know, by a passing car, like that was enough, let alone like what they, what they said and what, what was implied, um, that, you know, our, our images didn't belong there, that this mural didn't belong there. And, you know, it wasn't the, that wasn't the first experience I had with it. And it wasn't the last, um, by any means, but yeah, I played on a softball team I mentioned and, and it was a lot of fun. And, and I kind of remember just things like thrown out from the, like the stands, like, you know, speak American. And, um, you know, when we would win against the Mexican team, it was like, it was just whatever, like two teams competing against each other. But then when it was like the Mexican team versus the white team, um, you know, how much better oh, it felt great when you won. And you, then you realize like how easy it is to fall into that. Right. Yeah. Um, so even me as an outsider, right. I started to be like, you know, to feel that us versus them mentality. And all of this was like, this is like five, six, seven you know, years before, um, what has now become commonplace. Yeah. Right? Like, we all understand the us versus them. So to come back to your work, uh, preparatory notes uh, for future masterpieces is such a cool concept, even before I really dive into the plot, like just the um, the idea that it's a, a novel based around like kind of not found footage, but found writings and drawings and stuff like that, fashion to a narrative. Uh, could you go into the process a bit of how that book came to be? I read another interview where you said it's it started like, over a decade ago now? Yeah. So I, you know, first kind of imagine this character who, I mean, I joke in the beginning that he's kind of like a Chicano Forrest Gump. Um, you know, I wanted a character that like just like kind of by accident, like falls into history. And uh, I had read other examples, um, Gunther Grass's The Tin Drum, uh, Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children. And I love those stories because, you know, the history of these countries is kind of in the background. Um, and then these characters who are all zany, they all like end up interacting with that history. And I thought, oh, I want to do that, that, but I want to tell it, you know, about Chicano history. And so just imagine this character kind of running into Cesar Chavez and running into um, Corky Gonzalez and Dolores Huerta and, you know, these other, um, you know, famous people and these you know, significant events. And, but, you know, in some ways, I think being hired in Chicano studies kind of changed that because I was now surrounded by that history and discussions of it. And maybe I wanted my story, um, the story that I was telling in this novel to, to go in a different direction. So I still had that concept, but every time my character would be about to like interact with history, um, he, he kind of had this desire to kind of run in the opposite direction. And all he was focused on was himself and his desire to make his art and in a way like his own struggles with, with madness. Um, so yeah, he, he runs into Reyes Lopez Tijerina as a young preacher. He runs into Martin Ramirez, the outsider artist. He runs into Oscar Zeta Costa. And um, these were all these kind of situations that I had set up or threw in his way hoping that they would go in this direction where, you know, history becomes negotiated. Um, but really the story is about him, um, you know, and his struggles as, you know, to become an artist or actually to, to fail to become an artist. So that's where it started out. And um, I, I worked on it for years and I would send it out um, hoping to get interest from publishers and yeah, there didn't seem to be, much interest. And that's just, that's part of the process of, of being a writer. I think it's part of the process of being a Latinx writer. Um, you're, 
yeah, you, I mean, failure and rejection. I mean, that's just, that's part of being an artist and you push through it and you work on, you know, like, well, what do I need to alter? You know, how do I, how should I improve it? Or, you know, seeing each rejection as an opportunity to revisit the work and rethink the work. Um, and there was all these conversations that I was having that were more literary that I saw my work in those terms, right? Like, well, where does this story about this artist, this outsider artist, like fit into our expectations of Chicanx or Latinx literature? Um, or how does it defy those expectations? Um, my exchanges with editors or with agents and like what they would be looking for and how my work in a way wouldn't fit into that, right? They wanted an immigrant narrative or they wanted something that was more recognizable as this is what an audience is looking for when they're, you know, picking up a book about, you know, Latino, the Latino community. And so as I was having those conversations, um, I, I, you know, eventually kind of thought, why don't I just start to write these down? And, those became kind of the framing of the story. And so the, the book and the illustrations are presented as like these fa- as found manuscript. Um, and, and the footnotes that accompany the manuscript are like the commentators. One of them is the narrator's nephew, the nephew's friend, Lorraine Rios, who is like a amateur Chicano history buff. And then the professor, Professor Peace who they end up sending the found manuscript to all of them are commenting on the story as as you're as you're reading it and you know I think my hope was to both kind of bring context to the story um, but then also to just shed light on this larger conversation and criticism of of Latinx literature and how it can sometimes, collapse or, you know, just the, the weight of the expectations that a reader brings to it, you know, is kind of unfair to bring to what should just be a story and whether the story is good or not, or whether the story is what was, is, is well-written or not. Um, um, our literature, unfortunately, is often kind of judged by completely other, you know, other terms. You, you kind of touched on my next question, actually, which um, is how much of this story is you? Because in the second letter of the book, mind you, I started reading it. I have not been able to finish it just yet. But there is the second letter of the book is somebody praising the professor for introduction to Chicano movement, which is almost the other book of yours I had on my desk. So (laughs) is there more reality to this book than one might expect? And it sounds like there is. Yeah. And, you know, I've in other works, I've played with that where, you know, the narrator is someone who is like me, but, um, you know, I teach in high school or, you know, there's some sort of change in the biographical details. That's enough for me to to imagine the narrator or the person as like as a character separate from myself. And there was a point where the footnotes were like in my voice. Um, But, you know, I was some of the arguments that I make are. You know, I, I didn't necessarily know that I could stand behind them. And if I was, you know, talking in this podcast or up on a panel or even in my classroom, like I might bring them up as topics of conversation, but I wanted the professor to have this kind of knowledge of, of all of, you know, Chicanx literary history and to kind of be commenting on it um, from that vantage point. And, and I'm not a literary scholar. I'm, I'm a practitioner. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a visual artist who found his way into, you know, writing fiction. And yes, I teach courses in Chicanx and Latinx literature, um, but I'm not an expert. And I wanted the Professor Bisato, the one writing the footnotes, to be an expert. And I also wanted him to kind of make these claims that were more, um, you know, more ambitious than I think claims that I definitely have thought them, but I wouldn't kind of go out on on a limb um, if I was, you know, to be pressed. And so it was easier to kind of create a character who, yeah, adopts that 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 voice of expertise, that voice of of uh, of um, you know a confident voice expressing these views, and um, yeah, who isn't afraid of kind of making these these uh, what might be contentious uh, claims about about Chicanx or Latinx literature um, or the work itself. And in order to do that, I needed to kind of think of think of Professor Pisado as a character separate from what I would feel comfortable saying. 
Uh, then to change gears completely once more, when we were first setting this up, you told me that you just took over as the editor for the Wasache Journal, and uh, I want to know how you landed that role and how uh, that has been for you since you took that over. Yeah, so I, I've been in, you know, just conversations with Dagoberto Gilb, um, who is, you know, one of the foremost uh, Chicano writers, Texas writers um, of, of, you know, of all of Chicanx literature. And he founded it at uh, the University of Houston, Victoria in 2011. And we've been working together to transition Wisache to, to be housed at UC Davis. The next issue will, will um, kind of, uh, I'll be the editor. And uh, it, when I first kind of came across Wisache, and you know, again, or, or 2011, 2012, I, I held the journal in my hand and felt like this was just like this very special like object like it was it was beautifully done the writing within were all these kind of luminaries um i think like the first issue had you know gary soto it also had my uncle jose montoya it had um, araceli's good my and willie perdomo and you know all these kind of just these these big names at the same time um there was all these other writers who i was being exposed to for the first time and that continued into subsequent issues where there's all these kind of the, the, the luminaries of Latinx literature right next to writers who are doing really exciting stuff that have just emerged out of MFA programs or who are about to publish their first book or who would go on and publish their, their first book. And maybe their first publication was in Wisache. And it's the goal of Wisache, its editorial mission was always to, um, was to focus on Latino literature, but not be exclusive to Latino literature. Um, and so there are writers from, um, you know, they're African-American writers and, and uh, um, Sherman Alexi, a Native American writer, and, you know, out, writers outside of the Latino community and this acknowledgement that, sure, like we have a literature that, you know, that's dynamic and exciting and needs to be, you know, more attention to be paid to it, but we don't exist in, in isolation and all of these other writers communities are part of ours as well. And so I would say the focus was was on the Southwest. That was an important part, um, as opposed to the publishing world, which you know just just looks at you know for the most part New York, right, and then other kind of urban urban centers. And yeah, so many stories of of uh, the Southwest, um, our communities in California that aren't in the Bay Area or aren't in Los Angeles are are overlooked. And so here was this journal that was really kind of unearthing and giving exposure to great writing, but also stories about places that, you know, were, you know, unfamiliar, unfamiliar with. And um, Dagoberto, I, I had saw in interviews, I heard him describe Wisache as being like our Paris review. And some, something about that appealed to me. One was um, kind of the lore of the Paris review. Um, the, the fact that here was a place where the best writers of their generation were, were publishing, um, also kind of understanding that there was this kind of also elitist and, and very much, uh, you know, in some ways like incestuous, like friends publishing friends and somehow that like was still New York and still in Paris. Um, but like, what if we had a journal in which we were able to do something similar? Um, not that we were just publishing our friends, but that we were focused on, we had a whole other kind of network. Right, um, and that's important to to recognize. Um, I kind of, as a writer, like was so much informed by you know the interviews that were in the Paris Review, and so even though we such it doesn't have interviews, it's something that I would like to incorporate um, you know later on. Um, it's just the 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 idea that you could turn to this magazine and you could feel such pride in the work that was being produced that was being created and the different voices that felt like they were really just like expanding what it meant to um, to write Latinx and Chicanx literature. Um, all of that contained within, um, you know, with a, you know, a journal of uh, 150 to 200 pages. And so, yeah, when Dagoberto first reached out to me about this possibility, I, I just, I had, I've never edited a magazine before. Um, but I couldn't pass up this opportunity because I felt like this was something that needed to be continued. And I was, I was excited about the, the challenge. 
I, I feel like you kind of mentioned this by um, comparing it to the Parish of You and having something to hold in your hands and be able to like have a pride in that. Uh, I mentioned earlier my connection to music is really strong, and I'm old school in the way that I am a vinyl record person. Um, so I feel like there is a like an old school legitimacy to the print format of this magazine that it's continuing to stay a physical product. But like, is was there ever discussion of going to a blog with it? Because it's been several years since issue eight was out, and nine I believe is out this fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean the, the the hiatus in you know from issue eight to issue nine, um, it was part of you know Dagoberto Guild's like his frustration with um, you know at his university and kind of dealing with uh, you know just uh, issues that came up there, and um, which was why he was looking to pass this on. And and you know I I f- I feel like there was you know there's magazines and journals they come and go all the time it's very difficult to sustain them and that's why so many of them are deciding to go online where it's like well this is how people find us anyways it's much cheaper than to publish um you know this large quantity of books and have to figure out how to store them um the cost of all of that versus just like having a website and posting um all of the material online financially i think it's just more it, it is more viable but when you think about um, and so many people have told me this since it's like they they've really been missing Wisache, right? There's been um, this void that was created when it was no longer when it hasn't been published for the last couple of years. And so I think about like what what was that void, right? It wasn't like another website not producing more content. It was not being not having that experience of the journal arriving in the mail and, you know, opening up the package and pulling out this like beautiful book. Like you could just, you can feel the the quality of the, you know, the paper and the cover and anyone who loves books, right? Like you also love the object of it. Um, the, you know, the design as a whole. And so it's, yeah, it's just a different experience. Like you could be reading an incredible story online and, you know, you're still tempted to check your email and you're still tempted to check like whatever other windows that you have um, on the web browser that you're using. So it is a very different experience. And, you know, I, I read material online all the time, but I also I treasure those kind of the, the experience and those moments that I have when when I'm I'm engaging, you know, this kind of this tactile object. And so I think I think that was part not so not just the quality of the content, but also um, the feeling that, you know, this is this is something special that I hold in my hands and that I'm going to put on my shelf. And yeah, the the experience that young writers have had when maybe this was like their first or one of their earliest publications. And they've you know have said to me, like, I felt like I finally made it, you know, or I'm now I'm like in conversation with like the biggies. And and um, I mean, that can occur as well on, a, on an online platform. But, you know, for me, there's still something very substantial about you know the the printed text and and holding a book in your hands uh finally i want to mention the uh interview project that i know you're working on that i have a very small part in because i help you know get the trend the uh transcriptions out there um (laughs) could you please tell me a bit more about this project and how you are interviewing other authors as an author is that weird (laughs) you know um it is a little weird, except um, I, you know, it's it's not like it comes up. Uh, you know, it's not like, well, you know, they're asking me about my books or anything like that. I, I, I very much like take a, um, you know, a backseat in these conversations, and it's more just giving these writers, um, you know, a, a platform. And yet, I, I always, um, and this, my colleague Angie, Angie Chabram, um, you know, who taught for so many years and took me under her wing in in Chicano studies um you know she always was so excited that I was a practitioner you know that I wrote fiction you know I I did and you know she said at some point like she wished she could unlearn all of her theory and here I was so insecure about not having like my PhD in you know in literature um and so you know, she gave me the confidence that like my vantage point as a creative writer was all I need and that that was exciting right that was enough to kind of enter into the text. And so um, my colleague that I'm working on it with um, Javier Huerta, you know, he's also, uh, he's a poet. 
And um, we're we're approaching these interviews from the vantage point of you know also being you know creator writers and thinking about how these books and these you know, poems and how things are constructed. At the same time, you know we're very much uh, you know immersed in the history of of Chicanx and Latinx literature as a whole, and so we bring all of that that awareness into our interviews and. We both were influenced by a book, um, Chicano Authors by Juan Bruce Navoa, which interviewed um, like kind of the first wave of Chicano writers. And um, this is in the late 1970s. And we borrow some of his questions and we kind of alter them for, you know, this kind of this contemporary landscape. Um, another book was of um, Frederick Luis Aldama, Spilling the Beans in Chicanolandia. And um, that was like the second wave. So we felt like there hadn't really been this collection of interviews of, you know, of this third wave, um, writers working in the 21st century. And so all of our, all of our authors, um, almost all of their works, for the most part, have been published from 2000 and on. And there are generations within that. Um, those who were published, you know, early early on in the 2000s, and those who are just coming out, like with their, you know, their first or second book, and it's exciting to see just the range of conversations and perspectives and understandings of Latinx literature and Latinx identity and their approach to the page. And um, so, you know, to go back to your question, as far as you know, is it strange to be an author interviewing other authors? Um, I think what's so wonderful is just to be able to like just hear my contemporaries and just to see, you know, how, um, you know, how how vary the voices are that are out there, and to give them a platform and to present it again in this book form, so that they're all brought together in the same in the same conversation. Uh, without like spoiling parts of your book that's forthcoming of course because uh we're still transcribing interviews and such uh as an author you have done numerous interviews about your process and stuff like that in flipping the script and being the person asking the questions i'm assuming you are getting to ask questions that you have never been asked that you would like to be asked what is one of those questions <laughs> So that's a great question because as I'm asking the questions um, of the author and here I've asked them, you know, we're like on our 18th interview now. Um, I always think like, I don't know how I would answer this, you know? Um, and I'm always surprised that uh, I'm not surprised. I'm just like, I'm, I'm, uh, I, they come out with fully formed, you know, answers uh, it seems like. And like, as if they, you know, we, we gave them the questions ahead of time, whereas that's not the case. We're always like asking them there, there in the moment. And I let's see, there's one, there's a question that we have that, that, that asks about literary traditions. And, and then there's a question that we have that talks about, you know, are you political? And, and I love these questions, the answers to these questions, because sometimes people just look at literary traditions, the work that they've been influenced by. And so you hear all the different books that they've read that have influenced them. Others like clearly understand, you know, where they situate their work, right? Um, I inherit, you know, Tomas Rivera and Rodolfo Anaya and Sandra Cisneros, and I continue in that, you know, in that tradition. Um, and I think that I, the obvious answer to that would be I inherit the Chicana, Chicana, Chicano, uh, Chicanx tradition, and those authors have had a huge influence on me. And I guess at the same time, like it goes back to our earlier conversation about um, growing up in Elmira and how many, like the different sides of ourselves, the different facets of who we are. And I think about like the, the tradition of Elmira storytelling and what that means. And I, my, what my best friend growing up, his, uh, his dad, Antonio is um, in a rest home here in Woodland. And throughout the pandemic, I've gone to his window, uh, haven't been allowed inside and I call him and I'm talking on cross street and he's talking from his window. And, and we immediately start telling stories about Woodland and like the neighbors and and you know what this person is up to and, and Lupe's house that got torn down and and um, this person who built a fence because their kid's gonna get married and and 
And it's so one we're repeating stories. We're telling stories that we already know or that, you know, but it's, I just love this exchange that we have because of this history that we share. And, and um, I, I, I think about that as a literary tradition in its own way, but that is often difficult for me to kind of talk about um, because it's so, it's just so personal to, to me and who I am and, and the kind of storyteller that I am. I have to say, if we don't end this interview on that perfect, like, call back to the very beginning, it would be a mistake. So thank you so much for being on my podcast. I'm going to go ahead and kill the recording now because that was a beautiful way to end. Well done. Uh, <laughs> if I had an audience, they'd be applauding. Uh, well, that was great. Yeah.